urge you to, uh, to go online and to see the uh, videos of uh, our worship team from the district conference. Uh, as Ashley said, they're, they're, they're wonderful. There's, there's one specific one, though, that I, I well, there's two I watch, I watch every day, but one is uh, with our own youth pastor, Isaiah, and uh, the song, Worthy of, what's the name of that one? Worthy of All Our Praise? Or? Build My Life, all right. And Isaiah wrote a specific uh, kind of spoken word rap, and when you hear it, if you listen to it, it's, it, one, it's incredibly powerful, but the other thing is, people are starting to get up and like scream in it. They're starting to cheer, they're starting to move, and you can kind of hear it in the background, this, this sort of uproar that comes of, of, of passion and joy for the Lord because of how uh, anointed Isaiah was as he did that, so... Check that one out. It's what's it called? Build my life, and it's ama- It's just amazing. I'm just so thankful that every week I get to enjoy entering into the presence of Christ with Gabe and how well He leads us and how our team. And they were amazing on the. Yeah, thank you. They were amazing in this place. It seats about almost two thousand or so, and. Uh, the stage was as big as our building, so uh, it, was, it was awesome, though, to see just our team get up there, and it was, it was just wonderful. I would compare them with Hillsong or Bethel or any of them, the way they did. They were so good, and the presence of the Lord. There was one night, Tuesday night, that was a combination of our team and then uh, Nyack College's gospel choir and probably eight songs, right? Maybe about eight songs of worship. And just the sense of the presence of the Lord. And then that night, powerful preaching and uh, deliverances, healings, all manner of things took place. It was just a really awesome night in uh, seeing people get set free and seeing the Lord uh, honored in such a powerful way. Well, we're, we're studying uh, this letter of Paul to the Colossians. This morning, I have, I have four points. I'm going to save one of the four. <laughs> for Thursday. So I confused them in the first service a little bit, but I, I'm going to do three of the points today, which will only take me two hours. So uh, I'll do three of the points today. And then on Thursday, we're doing a live devotional on Facebook. And uh, you can either watch it live, which I like because people send messages to me during the time, and I like that. But uh, you can catch it later or whatever. But what we're doing is we're realizing that the passages we have are so rich with truth, with information, and we want to focus on one piece this morning, and then we'll catch a second piece on Thursday. So just as your week is sort of coming to the end, there'll be a, we'll give you another uh, boost then of, uh, of power from Colossians. But the, the passage we're looking at today is Colossians 1, 24 through 5, 5. Now, Here's what I'd like you to focus on as we read this together. Basically, this passage is an indication of how much it costs to care for somebody else. And the the vulnerability and the commitment and the passion that has to be there if you want to see someone who's deceived get out of their deception. This is not a superficial relationship. This is what it takes in the spirit to see friends, family, co-workers, 
come into the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is, is laying out for the Colossians what it has taken for him to write this letter to them and what is going on in his heart as he writes it. You see, because it's so easy when people are deceived to just scold them. But any of us in here love scolding? No one does. You know, it's an interesting thing that in many ways people don't really care how much you know till they know how much you care. And so what, what Paul is saying here, he's making himself incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. And he's saying, this is what it's costing me to care for you. And so as we read this together, I'd like you to let the Spirit of God speak to you. You're here this morning by invitation of the Holy Spirit. He's calling you into a new season of ministry. This is not for other people. This is for you. You are now going to be responsible for the invitation he's giving you. So I'm asking you to take this very seriously. Some of you, some of you are saying, let me skip out right now. No, you're here because God brought you here. And he wants to take you where you've not been. So let's read this together. I like it when you read out loud. Uh, Let's read God's word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. One of the key aspects of this passage is in those last verses that we read, and that is that this little church in Colossae is being deluded. They are being deceived. They were birthed out of a move of God, um, the region of Ephesus saw one of the greatest moves of the Spirit that has ever been seen. Healings took place, deliverances, supernatural interventions into the lives of people, so much so 
that the Bible seems to suggest that over the region of Ephesus, there was an open heaven. That whatever principalities or powers, whatever demonic influence that there was over that region for a time was wrestled to the ground. And that God moved. Paul preached for two years there, over 2,000 hours of messages and sermons and teachings. People were healed just by touch, just by just by the presence of the apostle and others. It was just an amazing thing. And, and there was this man who was there from Colossae. His name was Epaphras. And Epaphras got saved by that movement. He got set free and he got commissioned to go and preach the gospel. He was sent back to his hometown where he saw the same kind of signs and wonders, the same kind of move of God's spirit, and a church was raised up. But Epaphras had no credentials. Epaphras had probably had never even met Paul. Epaphras was just on fire for Jesus. No seminary training, no rabbinical training. And so these false prophets, these false apostles, these false teachers started coming into this little church and they said, you know, Epaphras is basically a lightweight. He really doesn't know what we know. He doesn't really understand what we understand. And they began to basically say to the people, what you've heard is not enough. And who you are is not enough. And so they began to try to distract them from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the language of this whole thing, Paul is talking about all the secrets and the mysteries and all the fullness dwell in Christ. This is in direct contrast to this group of false teachers and false apostles who said, no, we have secrets that you don't know. We have ways to connect with God that you do not know. See, this passage in many ways, and it's so relevant to us, if you'll, you'll let it be, this is all about helping the people you love connect to God in a meaningful way. Amen. This is about getting them into a place where they have a confidence and a right standing with God, and they themselves have an assurance that they are God's child and that they, are living, that they can live in a way that really brings fullness and completeness to their lives. But in order for you to help others or for you to care for others in such a way that they begin to be transformed, there has to be something about you and the way you love and the way you care for people that's not like anybody else. And what Paul lays forth here, and I love this because I believe not only is he opening his heart, but he's vulnerable with them. He's not a fake it till you make it kind of guy. He's not a here's the morality kind of guy or here's the philosophy kind of guy or here's the theology. He's like, this is my heart for you. There's something so real and so genuine here. And he starts it off with one of these marks that I would call of a true servant of the Lord, one who truly serves out of a heart for people and out of a heart for the Lord. And he says, I rejoice in my suffering. Now, Gabe, a little while ago, said later on today he's going to rejoice in his suffering at the apple-picking place. And I'm going to look on Instagram and see how much rejoicing he's doing. You know, that, what, he say, what Paul is saying here, what Paul is saying here isn't that he loves pain and he looks for pain. He doesn't enjoy pain. Pain in itself is not spiritual. What he's saying is, that he knows his suffering has significance, that it has meaning. In other words, 
He's chosen to suffer in such a way so that because He's chosen it, He can rejoice in it. He's suffering for something that has worth, for something that has meaning. Most of you are old enough in this place to realize you will not go through this life without pain. You will not go through this life without suffering. The question is, will that suffering that you incur be significant? Will it have potential for some investment that's greater than yourself? Or is it just more stupid suffering? I mean, people who drink and get drunk all night suffer the next morning. And as they're puking their guts out, they're saying, why did I do that? And even saying, I'll never do it again until next Friday night. They choose to suffer stupidly, knowing the cost of it, and yet doing it anyway. People, many, of us, many of us suffer because of stupid choices with our money. We max out our credit cards. We can't live without this or without that. And we get to the place and we're like, why am I always behind? As we get late notices or late fees or all of these other things. See, the, what, what Paul is saying here is in this life, suffering is unavoidable. But why you suffer is up to you. Is a choice you make. You see, he can only say, I rejoice in what I'm doing because I know what I'm doing. I know what it's going to cost, but I also know what the potential is. And what he chooses is to suffer for the sake of the gospel, but he also chooses to suffer for the sake of others. See, everything about this flies in the face of our society. Do you know what the number one value in our society is? whether it's spoken or unspoken, the number one value is pleasure. Is this satisfying to me? Is this fulfilling to me? Is this going to make me happy? Is this going to actualize me? And so any time that they're suffering, there's almost an immediate exit. There is a, there is a thing in you that says, well, it, you know, marriage shouldn't be this hard, so I should be able to get out of it. Being a, a son or a daughter or a family member, a father or a mother, shouldn't be so hard, so I get out of it. Matter of fact, most people only have children for their own sake, not for the children's sake. So that I can be a mother, so I can be a father, so I can be you know, the missing part of my life. Poor kids, if that's the agenda. It's a selfish agenda. You understand, you're living in a society that bombards you every day with saying that you're nothing but an accident. That says every, because if, if you're just a force of evolution, then it's all an accident. If there is no creator, if there's no design, then you're an accident. Because, so that follows then that all suffering is nothing but random and therefore has no meaning. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. It's not that he's enjoying the pain, he says, This suffering has significance. This is. This is so essential that you get this. He, he goes so far as to say this, that a part of who you are, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a part of who you are is that what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you, Jesus is now asking that you would accomplish for where you are right now. He says it this way. He says, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Now, obviously, no one 
knew better than Paul that Jesus' finished work had accomplished the perfect salvation. He wasn't saying that there's anything left in the atoning work of Jesus for the saving of sinners. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, though, is where God has planted you, whether it's in your family or your job or your profession or whatever it is in the geography where he has planted you, you are to take up your cross for that place, that people, just like Jesus took up his cross for you. Now, this is fairly high concept, so let me, let me try to bring it down into some more personal sort of ways. I do a lot of premarital counseling over, over the years, and then immediately after they get married, some after-marriage counseling. And, uh, and it's so interesting, because if I meet with the husband alone or I meet with the wife alone, they have completely plausible stories but not the same story. So you hear the husband's story, you hear the wife's story, and it's like, she's this, he's this, you know, all of this stuff. And, you, and I think, well, probably the best thing is to just put boxing gloves on and see who wins, you know. Because it's just so, both of them are so plausible. And then you get them together, and, and, and they're on completely different planes of argument. And you wonder sometimes, how in the world is this, this two people who seem so disunified, how are they ever going to become one? You know what has to happen is one of them has to say, I will fill up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. I, and what this means is Christ suffered innocently. Christ suffered not because he had something to blame or because he had done something wrong. He suffered in his innocence, and he did so willingly. At some point in any true intimate relationship, you will have to do what seems unfair. You will have to care for that person more than you care about being right. You'll have to care about that person more than getting your revenge. You'll have to care about that, more, that person more than protecting your own ego or your own rights or any other thing. You have to come to the place where you're willing to die for that person. No relationship ever goes to the place of true intimacy when two people are fighting for their rights. Because what they end up is two people always opposed to each other, always fighting with one another, never allowing that, that wall to come down. In a sense, if you take this as clearly as I think Paul is expressing it, you come into Rockland County or New City or you're here at Risen King Alliance Church, wherever it is, and you go, and you go whatever it costs, I'm going to be like Jesus here. Whatever it costs, even if there are people who don't love me the way I want them to love me, even if there are people who don't understand me the way I want to be understand, I will love the way Jesus loved. I will understand the way Jesus understood. And I will stay in this relationship even if it costs me everything. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying, you know, if, they, if you guys like me and receive my letter, then, then we'll be buddies. Paul is saying, do you understand? I am suffering for your sake. But at the same time, I'm rejoicing because I know the potential of what my suffering will bring in your lives. He's willing to care for them so deeply 
that he's willing to lose his own, in a sense, sense of safety and security because he loves them that much. I know this is tough, but I'm asking you. You see, I'm asking you, isn't that why you're here this morning? Isn't that what the Lord Jesus is asking of you? Hasn't he asked it of you ever since you became a follower of him? To love like he loves? I mean, basically, if you want to understand this, I think in a very meaningful way, is that Jesus has said, my mission is not complete without you. He's, he's, you know, he's provided that way of salvation. He's, he's made a way to have connection and intimacy with God, but he has placed the mission on us. Now, let me take it a step further then. You are not complete. You are not fulfilled. You are not truly rejoicing like Paul rejoices until you have surrendered yourself to this mission. He didn't just come into your life to make you feel better. He didn't just come into your life so you can hold on till you get to heaven. He came into your life to empower you, to give you completeness, to give you fullness so that you could do his mission. And when you're on mission and you're loving people like Paul loved them and like Jesus loves them, then you realize this is what it feels like to be satisfied. This is what it feels like to be fulfilled. But it, it is clearly this part. You are invited to come into relationship with the Holy Spirit in such a way that you begin to live as one who is filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for your family, for your school, your job, for whatever it is, you begin to realize you're not first a doctor or a teacher or a student. You're a first Christian. You're a first Christ in you. I remember in 2007, I, uh, things weren't going great here at the church. And, uh, you know, a couple times in my life, I've prayed this prayer, Lord, if you just give me better people, I'd be a better pastor. (laughs) And even in my earliest days as a pastor, when I didn't know if I could hear from God or not, because I wasn't taught to listen, and I think he said this to me, I gave you the people that you need, and I gave you the people I chose for you. And, uh, And as I... As I learned that, it still sometimes has not always been tough, especially when you hit such resistance and people are misunderstanding you or they're sometimes accusing or slandering you and things are going on. And there was a period of time when it was like that. And I was, I was, really, I was really struggling and saying, Lord, is my time here? On a national level, who I respect, called me up and they said, what I was thinking, they said, no, there's this, pl- there's this church. We want you to go there. We think you're the only one for that job. So I prayed and I said, Lord, uh, you know, these are two of my, my mentors, leaders. Uh, it's really rough here at Risen King. Maybe you are saying this. So Lisa and I went and we checked the place out. And I, there were some, some perks. Uh, they were paying $30,000 a year more than I make here. They had $20,000 set aside for a house for us to buy. And, uh, you know, and, and all the people there were from Yale. So I, was, I would seem like I was smart, too, you know. And, 
So I go, we go up there, and immediately as we drive into the territory, I go, this is not for us. This is, I have no, I have no heart for this. I have no vision for this. And, uh, and I, I met with the people, and I told them immediately, no, we're not called to this. I came back to Rockland. And I, I remember saying, Lord, whether I die, <laughs> succeed, fail, whatever it is, I'm here. This is where I am. And I know for some of you this may seem weird, but it felt like roots went from my feet into the ground. And, uh, and, I, and I, what I realized was most of my life when I suffer, I don't rejoice. I say, please get me out of this suffering. Give me 30,000 more. You know, give, me, give me something cheaper. Give me something easier. Whatever it might be. And that, that was one of those times where I just said, I said to the Lord what Paul said about Colossians. I rejoice in my suffering because I know I'm choosing it. I'm choosing it. And when I chose it, it was so amazing because he established me and he gave me a place and he gave me a voice and things began to turn around. I'm not saying this in any way to say it's a formula or anything else. I'm just saying it's a descriptor. Look, friends, right now there's something the Lord is saying. Will you choose this? Will you choose into it? I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. It could be your marriage. It could be your friendship. It could be your job. It could be any of those things. But instead of saying, oh, God, please get me out of this, you say, I rejoice in my sufferings. And I will right here fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I will take on his cross just like he took on the cross for me. And even in my, you know, even though I feel blameless or I feel innocent in this, I will still suffer and I will do it for the sake of others. Now, here's what the Bible is teaching and that is that's how you really feel satisfied. It's how you feel complete, is when you know that your sufferings have purpose. You know they are significant. Paul says it this way. He says, ministry is a stewardship from God. And the stewardship that God has given you is to make the word that he gave you fully known to those who are around you. In order for that to happen, you have to be like Paul. And this, this, is, where I see, this is where I see a whole new level for you. There are a lot of us in here that if God, you know, will say things like, Lord, if you really show me what you want me to do, then I'll do it. Or if you really show me how it's all going to turn out, then I'll do it. And it's, it's been this very interesting thing in Colossians where God makes visible what he wants to make visible, but he keeps a lot of things invisible. Like he is the invisible God who has made himself visible in Christ. But we often want God to make our invisible future visible. And then we'll decide if we want to do it or not. And more often than not, he keeps the future invisible and says, because I made myself visible, will you trust me? Will you obey me? And not just, see, this isn't just an, an obedience where you do it because you're afraid of the consequences. See, if you're obedient out of fear, you're still doing it selfishly. 
When you are a fearfully obedient person, you're just afraid of what's going to happen to you. So you're still not close to God, and you're not even really close to yourself. Because fear is a mask. Fear is, is something that obscures, and it definitely is something that limits. See, when you really make the decision, and this is not an easy decision to make, but my first step with God is going to be yes. People say to me sometimes, like, but what if, what if I don't know? It's, what, if I, you know what if it's not God? I said, always err on the side of yes. I mean, if you're going to make a mistake, make it with yes instead of no. You can sort it out. I mean, if you're sincerely trying to be obedient, but usually what people are trying to figure out is a way out. They're usually trying not to be obedient. Oh, I don't, think that, I don't think God would ask that of me. I mean, as long as you have that kind of self-protective air about you, you probably won't hear the great things of God. <laughs> the invisible future he has for you is far better than the visible future you could dream for yourself. Amen. Well, here's the secret, and this is so powerful. And you know what? God wanted you to know his secret. And the secret, Paul says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, here's, here's what happens with a lot of people. And a lot of Christians do this because they, sometimes they haven't been taught better. But they will, they will get excited about the concept of God with us. So at Christmas, we do Emmanuel, God with us. So we're big on that. And so a lot of a lot of Christians, a lot of faithful people, people who love, who actually pray, will pray a whole lot for something that is already there. So, oh, be with me, Lord. Be with me, Lord. See, what Paul's saying is Christmas was an annunciation about Christ himself, the invisible God having made himself visible so that you know who he is. That's what Emmanuel is about, is that the invisible God has made himself known. But what the exchange is when you become a Christ follower is he's not just with you, he's in you. He's in you. And in you then means everything that now is united to you, everything that's a part of who you are, your spirit, your soul, even your body. You are now in connection with and, uni- and united with everything that God is. So when people are praying, oh, be with me, they're praying the wrong prayer. What they really should be praying or understanding is you're already in me. Everything that's about you is united to me. (laughs) So you start your day more like this. What do you have to say to me? What, What are we up to today? What do you have planned for me? Because you don't have to invite him with you when he's already in you. (laughs) And Paul says this. Not only is he in you, but if you know who who it is that's in you, you will realize he's over you. Because Paul says everything is geared towards this, that he he would have the preeminence. That you would begin to submit to the fact that the one who is in you knows you better than you know yourself who has an unlimited future for you. 
As a matter of fact, uh, as we look at this imagination thing, you start to realize that if, you'll, if you stop confining God to your imagination and restricting him to who you can imagine him to be, then he can begin to create you and remake you in his image. And he can make you into a person who is actually beyond your wildest imagination. But you have to begin to believe that he's not the God who you can hold off at arm's length. Nor is he the God who's trapped up in heaven. But, rather, but literally, he's right here with you. Everything that is Jesus is now united with you. That's why when, when people make statements like, I just can't help myself. Or people make statements like, this is just the way I am. I'm an impatient person. That's just who I am. Do you know who's speaking that? That's not Christ in you. That's the devil with you. Who's trying to drown out the voice of Christ in you. See, what Paul says is Christ in you is the hope of glory. Whereas the devil with you is the hope of destruction. He will puff you up so he can blow you up. He'll make you think your desires and your longings and your lust and your ambition and your need for power and all those. That's your right. They can't talk to you like, who do they think they are talking to you like that? How can they treat you like that? Don't they know who you are and how important you are? Do you think that's Christ in you speaking that? Who himself set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem for crucifixion? knowing he was the Son of God, but yet willingly wrapping himself and clothing himself in your sin and your guilt and in your shame and taking the damnation of the Father for you? Do you think he's like, don't, don't you know who I am? He didn't care. He took your rejection, your forsakenness, your brokenness when he deserved all honor and praise and glory so that everything due to you would come on him. So that then everything due him is now coming on you. See, most of us, the world's a screwed up place. Can we agree on that? Can we agree on that? I mean, it's a mess. It's a mess. Even when it didn't seem like it was a mess, it was a mess. It's always been a mess. I don't know what the good old days were. I think it was Garden of Eden, perhaps. <laughs> Future. But do you understand what you're called to do in the midst of that is to love like never before. But not out of your own strength, not out of your own, you know, your own production of love, but rather out of understanding the secret that's been shared with you. And having encountered that Christ is in you, you begin to realize I have a hope. It's not in the government. It's not in legislation. It's not in the economy. It's not in the schools. It's not that those things can't be good. It's not that those shouldn't be the subject of justice. But our hope is bigger than that. And in the Bible, hope is never wishful thinking. It's never a sense of, oh, I hope this works out. Hope in the Bible is certainty about the future. It's a reality that that hasn't happened yet, but you're already experiencing it. 
My favorite you know, story on hope is the bicycle story. Is that little boy who just couldn't stand it that his friends had a bicycle and he didn't, crying. His father comes in and, and speaks to him and says, son, by your birthday you'll have a bicycle. Immediately when his father says that, that boy started to experience the bicycle. One, because his father was trustworthy. His father said he would have a bicycle, he would have a bicycle. But in that moment, his heart began to hope. Now, this isn't wishful thinking. He's beginning to experience it before he even has it. That's what this is. You see, this is the fullness of Christ in you now. This is your hope. You have it even before you see him. The day is coming. You will see him face to face. And you know what his face will look like? It will beam with pleasure. It will beam with love. It will beam with joy because he loves you that much and his eyes are on you. And, you know, he's not going, oh, I hope they're okay. I hope things are going to go all right with them. He's like, I know what your end is. I know what you will be. I have all the resources to get you there. Nothing is keeping you back but you. Not only is it, not only is it true hope and, and, and a certainty in that hope, but also it's, I love this word glory. I, I don't know, if over the years I've been able to get infused in you a passion for the word glory, but glory is a beautiful word because it has, it has to do with significance. It has to do with weight. It has to do with unshakableness. It has to do with Legit gravitas, it, it's substantial. See, for some reason, all the substantialness of Jesus, the Son of God, is now in you. All the weight of His glory, all the weight of His majesty, His beauty, His love, His joy, all of it is right there dwelling. And what's happened to most of us is we're looking for it. We're trying to believe that some job, we're trying to believe that somebody else health or whatever it is. And Paul is saying, and in that is certainty. A certainty that's unshakable. See, every time you go to insecurity, you're forgetting Christ in you. Every time you go to fear and you go to anger and you go to depression, you're saying, no, there's no hope. Except Hope outside of me. I, I mean, this is so practical if you'll let it be. When I first, you know, when you first get married, when I married my wife, she, she, I loved her. I thought she was so beautiful and so wonderful and all of that. But she drove me crazy. Because she wanted me to do the right thing all the time. I just want to be right. I don't really care about doing the right thing. I just like, I just like winning the argument kind of a thing. You know? And so I remember trying to change her. And I actually had a prayer list of all the things God needed to change in Lisa. All right, I'm being too vulnerable right now, obviously. Sometimes I fasted and prayed over the list. You know, I want her to change this. I want her to change that. I want her to be different here. I prayed that for about nine years. <laughs> I'm in trouble now. Let me finish the story.
when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, what I realized with all my hope was in the manifest presence of Christ through His Holy Spirit indwelling me and filling me. And, and, and all of my glory, like who I was as a person, who, the significance that I had, the safety and security that I had, the, the unconditional love and acceptance that I had. And, and there was a completeness in that connection that then I looked over and said, man, Lisa is a wonderful woman. You see, when I was trying to get completeness from her, I was disappointed. I was frustrated. I was trying to change her. But when I had true hope, certainty, when the glory of God was my weight and my significance and my safety and my acceptance, then I could look at her and go, she's really perfect the way she is. Because I wasn't trying to get from her what, I, what she couldn't give and what she couldn't be. I mean, now, I mean, I know you didn't like the first part of the story. But can you hear me? You see, as long as you're trying to get your hope from things that are uncertain, you're going to be uncertain. As long as you're trying to siphon glory from other people's glory, you're just drawing from an empty tank. I hear the music, so i got to hurry. What Paul is saying here is he's so much experiencing the Christ in him, that then what he has is an overflowing passion. Even he calls it an agony of a soul. He, he so is able to focus on the Colossians that he can give all of his energy to the goal of being a servant of the Lord. Because see, he's complete. He's experiencing fullness. He's experiencing all of that hope and that glory that that makes him centered and makes him strong and makes him solid and substantial. And now he can turn his attention because he doesn't need anything from the Colossians. But he has what they need. Can I, can I get you to see this? In our day and time, the message and the messenger are the same. See, it used to be that you could just put up a message and people would say, is the message true? Now they're looking and saying, is the messenger true? Is the messenger genuine? No one in our day receives a message from an inauthentic messenger. So when you speak and when you, you share and when you reveal, if it's not true, then the message itself is rejected. What Paul is saying here is he has an agony, he has a passion that, that motivates him because, you see, he's secure. He's settled. He knows his worth. He knows that he can even rejoice when he has to sacrifice or when he has to suffer because he has something so grounded, so, so substantial that he's un- immovable in that. And so he goes after these people But he goes after them in such a powerful way. He has passion, but he also has wisdom. See, when he announces the gospel to them, he has passion, but he also has wisdom on how to teach them. And he knows that the end goal isn't just to win the argument. The end goal is to present them as mature in Christ Jesus. That's the goal. 
The goal isn't just to get someone to walk the aisle or just to pray a prayer. The goal is to get them to maturity in Christ. When I was in Georgia, there were always these people on Sundays with this sign, turn or burn, you're all going to hell. You know, all kinds of things. And I mean, they were the sourest looking people you ever saw in your life. And I, I mean, they had agony. Okay, they had passion. They had all of these things, but they didn't have wisdom because people blew the horn at them. They gave them an unrighteous finger. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Because, you know, they had passion, but they didn't have wisdom. And then there are some people that they, they understand concepts and they understand information, but they have no passion. Do you understand what, what Paul has and what, he, what the Holy Spirit is calling you to have is both. That you've had such an experience and an encounter with Christ that you're willing to share in the sufferings because you know how much it means to know Christ. And that, that story of Christ and that love for Christ and that message that you're speaking to your kids or to your friends or to co-workers, it's coming forth as impartation of your life to their life. Does this make sense to you? Well, what does it mean to be mature in Christ? What is it that Paul's wanting? It's really kind of simple, friends. You see, people can be in church for 70 years and not be mature. And somebody could just be 20 years old and be completely spiritually mature if they do it the biblical way. So what it is is this. It is the realization and experience or that real encounter with Christ in me. Not Christ with me. Not Christ in the Bible. Not just Christ, you know, of somebody else. But Christ in me. And then Christ preeminent over me. When that's true, when Christ, when you are aware and living that everything He is belongs to you and everything you are belongs to Him. And He is preeminent. You're seeing your trials, your troubles, your circumstances through His eyes. You're beginning to realize that even the difficulties that are in your life are part of his plan for bringing you into that great hope of glory. That all these things, they're not random, but really they have purpose. That even the stripping away, he's stripping it away so that you can have glory. When you get to that place and you're living Christ in me, Christ over me, maturity comes. Will you stand with me? Would you just take a minute? Obviously, for some of you, this might, it might be a, a commitment you're not ready, ready to make. Maybe, uh, maybe you're at that place, you're saying, well, I'm, just, I'm really glad God is with us, okay? But that, that's not going to lead you to maturity. Because most people who say, well, God's with me, are saying, you know, he's blessing my agenda. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate, or I'm lucky, or whatever it is. But see, that, that's, not Paul, see, that's not what Paul agonizes over. Paul agonizes over you experiencing Christ in you. Patience is there. Wisdom is there. Strength is there. Love is there. And then Christ over you. Would you just take a moment, whether 
you want to touch your heart, you want to just stand there and do it, but would you just, could you say those words, Christ, you are in me, and Christ, you are over me. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do, I give you an assignment. I want you to start every morning this week with that, those words. Instead of saying, be with me today, realize he's already with you because he's in you. But the question is, will you respond to him being over you? Will he be preeminent? Now here, I mean, the reward of that is very simple. Completeness, fullness, satisfaction like you've never known before. But even beyond that, there's a huge, a huge advantage. You will care for people like Christ cares for people. And you will see their potential. And you will see people in your life go forward like never before. There's nothing more satisfying to see transformed lives. Especially of the people we love the most. But the funny thing is, you even start seeing it with strangers. Because you will, you will live a life where your spirit is being imparted to others. It's a beautiful thing. Lord, will you seal what you're doing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hug a few people, please. We'll see you next week. Check us out on Thursday for point four.